Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your abundant mercies and your great goodness to us. And as we uh, consider some difficult things at this time, we ask for you to be with us, for your Holy Spirit to be here, and for you to move in power amongst us. And help us to see what we need to see in the way that we need to see it, that there may be a change, a transformation, a difference in our lives. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, Tagged on to the end of yesterday's presentation was the causes of dysfunction. We didn't have a chance to go there, so I'm just going to run over it very briefly. I don't want to get anybody, uh, give anybody the idea that what one thinks is the only uh, cause for dysfunction. Right? We're just highlighting one of the causes because it's one that is not uh, recognized, I think, as well as it should be. Uh, we can have dysfunction in the body because of inheritance. Um, and so something that comes from a prior generation, uh, from parents or grandparents, passed on to the current generation. And uh, in these cases, you can't do anything really about the condition or taking it away because you can't get to the cause. The cause was in a prior time. You don't have a time machine to get back to it. And uh, the manifestation comes because there's an aberration of the DNA in all of the cells of the body. And we haven't figured out technically how to go about and take care of and fix every piece of DNA in all of the cells of your body. If you wanted to go and fix uh, every bit of DNA that was wrong, uh, that was leading to the particular condition in question, then uh, you would have to, let's say that you did really well at pulling out each cell, and, and in a second you can fix it and put it back, and pick, pick out the next one and fix it and put it back, and take out the next one and fix it and put it back. Well, it would be millions of years later by the time you got through all of the cells. And of course you'd be uh, slightly dead by that time. So inheritance issues, we don't have a fix for God does, but we don't from a human standpoint. There are environmental issues that lead to uh, dysfunction as well. Uh, You can have too much pressure, like uh, a car going at 70 miles an hour, you going at 2 miles an hour, and then all of a sudden you're going from 2 to 70 miles an hour. Uh, There's a lot of uh, pressure, damage, and so on. Temperature as well. We can burn ourselves, freeze ourselves, and so on. That will cause dysfunction to the cells as well and radiation. Uh, All of those are environmental aspects. We also have raw materials. You can have a deficiency of something or you can have an excess of that thing or you can have basically the wrong thing that you're putting in. Um, and, uh, And that can cause dysfunction in the body. You also have the energy aspects, which is what we were talking about yesterday with the whole uh, thoughts and communication via the nerves through the central nervous system to the different parts of the body to help to control uh, their function and to, in some way, kind of empower those cells. And then finally, you have the enemy. Uh, We have the example of Job. Well, Job didn't have an inheritance issue. It wasn't an environmental issue. It wasn't a raw materials issue, and it wasn't an energy issue. Uh, it was the enemy that was permitted to bring about the dysfunction in his body with the boils that he was suffering from. And by the way, he did natural remedies for it, right? He cut himself with pot shards 
And uh, any of the physicians in the room knows that if you have an abscess, one of the treatments for an abscess is incision and drainage. So you cut the thing open and drain it out. And then he also sat in sackcloth and ashes, charcoal, right? So he used charcoal. Um, So he was using natural remedies, everything that he had available to him to treat that. Um, but it was, a, it was a great controversy theme that was going on, and Job was in the midst of it, and, uh, and so it wasn't because of these other causes. So when we consider the causes of dysfunction or disease in an individual, we need to consider all of these different options. Um, and again, I'm highlighting one uh, because of uh, the impact that it has on our health and that we usually don't recognize it. Now, do you need love? Okay. If you need love, then can you be the source of that love? No. By definition, a need is something that you must have to survive, but which you cannot produce. Right? You need oxygen to survive, uh, but you can't produce the oxygen that you need to survive by. Now, I'm not saying that you can't get some kind of machine or device and extract oxygen from resources that are available. I mean that you can't create yourself the oxygen that you need to breathe by in order to keep yourself alive. And you can't create the water that you need to live by or the food that you need to live by. Yes, you can participate in natural processes that are in place already, like gardening and weeding and and, uh, and cultivating and other things like that, but you didn't create it. Uh, if, you, if you wanted a good challenge, then we can get some seeds, we can microwave them, and then we can bake them for a while, and then uh, let you go out and make some food, right? Uh, it's not going to work very well. We can't create, and so we are dependent upon these things, and again, those things that we need come from outside, not Inside, And so we must get them from the outside and bring them in. Now, how many individuals on this planet need love? All of them. So how many of them can produce love? Zero. That's right. None. So everybody needs love. Nobody can produce love. Whose responsibility is it for you to be filled with love? Well, we'll get to that. Um, Let's imagine that you had, let's run into why this is a problem uh, when we don't understand this topic very well. Let's say that you have a neighbor and the neighbor comes over and, you know, she, she knocks on the door and she wants some, some sugar, you know, so you give her some sugar. And she comes back and she knocks on the door and she wants some flour, and so you give her some flour. And she comes back and she knocks on the door and she wants some margarine, you give her some margarine. She comes back later and she knocks on the door and she wants some eggs. And, you know, you got the idea that she has a cake recipe waiting in there and, and you're her grocery store and, you know, she keeps coming for these different things and, and she just keeps coming to you for this, that, and the other thing. Well, one day, it's, the, it's the, un, the, the not typical knocking. It's the desperate knock, right? And she has come, and uh, she is desperate. And you know this is one that you can't ignore. So you've got to go and answer the, uh, answer the door. And so you do, and you go and answer the door. And, and she is just desperate. Why? Because she's found out that her daughter has come down with a terminal illness, And this terminal illness has had no uh, treatment, no cure, no nothing, uh, 100% fatal. And, uh, 
But she has been doing some research, and she has found out that uh, there is a there is a center in. Uh, where Kazakhstan or somewhere like that that uh, has figured out how to treat this condition and uh, they have a 50-50 success rate, you know, 50% success, which is much greater than what's out there already. And she wants her daughter to live. But uh, since it's over in Kazakhstan... Uh, they don't accept U.S. insurance, and uh, you've got to pay out of pocket before you get treatment in the first place, and it's only $5 million. So she wants $5 million. So she comes over asking you for $5 million. Are you going to give her $5 million? You are so cruel. Right? <clears throat> no, you're not going to give her $5 million. Why? Because you don't have $5 million, Right? You, you just don't have it. But what if she thinks you do? You know, you drive a fairly new car, you live in an okay-sized house, and so on and so forth, and she thinks you've got $5 million that you can put towards her daughter's uh, salvation, basically, her life. And so she comes back later, and she comes back asking for $5 million. Well, maybe you give her a donation of $1,000 to go towards this goal, and she keeps coming back looking for the rest of the I mean, $4,999,000. And she keeps coming back, and, and multiple times a day, and, 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 and so on. She keeps coming back and knocking and, and looking for the $5 million. How are you going to feel? All right. So, yeah, you feel bad. And what are some other words that you would use for that? All right. You're frustrated. You're, you're ready to avoid her. Right? Um, you know, some people are, are, are parking the car in the garage and closing the shades and pretending that they're not home. Other people are building a fence and putting a Rottweiler or Doberman Pinscher on the inside. You know? Others are so kind that they're even moving. <laughs> right? These are all responses that I've gotten from individuals in, in telling this scenario. But, but we're frustrated, we're upset, we're, we're, we are not comfortable with this situation because we don't have what they need. But how do they feel? Yeah. They feel rejected, right? They feel hurt, they feel slighted. They feel these various different ways. Why? Because they're coming to you and they're not getting what they need. Now, this is a, a foundational issue when it comes to human relationships. Why do we have so much chaos in relationships that we run into? Well, one of the reasons is because we're going to each other with expectations that are not realistic. Can the other person be the source of the love that I need? No, because they need that love too, right? They need that love too. They cannot be the source of the love that I need. So if I go to them to get the love that I need, are they going to be able to give me what I need? No. What kind of love do you need? You need a God love, right? How much love do you need? Right? You need an infinite love. Do you know any human being on this planet right now that has a God love and is infinite in its supply? No. So they cannot supply that which you need, but if you expect them to supply what you need, you're going to be frustrated. And your roots are going to be in the wrong soil. And if that soil doesn't work out, 
we might pick up and move to another soil and try to plant our roots there and see if we can get a better supply. Remember the tree yesterday, right? Well, we're the trees that can move around. Again, I ask the question, whose responsibility is it for me to be filled with love? Is it mine? Whose responsibility is it for me to be filled with oxygen? Well, it's mine. I have to breathe, right? Whose responsibility is it for me to be filled with water? That's mine. I have to drink it, right? Whose responsibility is it for me to be filled with proper nutrients? Well, it's mine. I've got I've to choose it. I've got to eat it, right? So have you ever felt empty when it comes to love? Or should I put it this way? Have you ever at any time in your life felt less than 100% full when it comes to love? If yes, the question that we can ask is, whose responsibility is it for you to be filled with love? Is it God's or is it yours? Well, what are we told? We are told that God does how many things well? He does all things well. How often does he do all things well? All the time. So if God does all things well all the time and he does it perfectly well when he does it, then how full will you be if it's his responsibility? You'll be completely full. How often will you be completely full? All the time. So if it was God's responsibility, you would be completely full all the time, never empty. But if you have even one moment in your life when you are less than completely full, then it tells us it's not his responsibility to fill us with love. It's our responsibility to take the love we need. Right? Now he, his responsibility is to make sure that it's available. Right? Hmm, interesting. So let's imagine a buffet. Let's say that you have been fasting for a few days and it's time to break the fast and there's this healthy restaurant over in Columbus, Georgia called Country Life and uh, it has this wonderful buffet and everything that you can find there is, is um, it, it's, you know, it's healthy and it's good and it's tasty and so on and you're really hungry. And so you go through and of course you don't want to be a pig and eat everything. So you want to go through and, and look and see what the options are before you actually go and consume what's there. And, and so as you do so, you, go, you take your bowl and fork and spoon and knife and plate and, and, uh, and napkin and tray and so on, and you go through and, oh, you're salivating over this and you're smelling that and you're looking at the other thing and you're imagining how it's going to taste and, and, and so on. And, and you get done with this exercise and then you go walk outside. You leave everything there behind and you're still hungry. Who, who, whose fault is it that you're still hungry? It's your own, right? It's your own because it's your responsibility to take and to eat, right? It's the restaurant's responsibility to make sure that it's available and that it meets certain standards, right? But it's our responsibility to take and to eat. You see, God has a buffet. He has a buffet of love. And that buffet of love has all sorts of dishes in it. This is just one representative table in it. It has grace and security and belonging and truth and mercy and acceptance and justice and freedom. All of these are just different components of love. And and God has offered this buffet to us that we might come and we might partake. And it has everything that we need. It is just what we 
have been created for, and it has a sufficient supply for everyone. So if you go to that restaurant, that buffet of love, and you walk away empty, whose responsibility is it? It's your own. Because it's your responsibility to take of the love that you need. It's God's responsibility to make sure that it's available, and he makes sure that it's available. He said in his word, Hebrews 13, 5, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I am not going to shut down the restaurant. Right? It won't be closed. Uh, Jeremiah 31, 3, I have loved you with an everlasting love, therefore with loving kindness I have drawn you. It's an eternal supply. It's not going to run out. And Isaiah 55, 1, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. It's also incredibly free because the owner has paid the price for the food. So it's always open, it's always stocked, it's always free. We can always come and eat at that buffet. Anytime we want to, anytime we need to, it's always available. But guess what? It's not the only buffet on the street. There are other buffets on the street too. There are buffets of selfishness. That include things like the drawing of power, pleasure, popularity, and possessions, but it also comes along with betrayal and abuse and deceit and control and and these other different types of things. And this is the buffet of, quotes, love that we find others providing. And so when we go to one degree or another, they have these dishes available for us, and you know what human nature's default is? It's to eat here. Right? Human nature's default is to eat here from this buffet. And if we're eating from this buffet, we can't be eating from the other buffet at the same time because they're mutually exclusive. Right? They're mutually exclusive. And, and, and so we get caught up in these false attractions. We get caught up in these different uh, problems and issues and so on. Um, how do you know that you're taking from somebody else's buffet? You're eating from their buffet. You know, we're told that what you eat, you are what you eat, right? You are what you eat. So you eat an apple and it gets digested and assimilated and then the little components of the apple becomes part of who you are. Well, the same thing is true when we're talking about love or this selfishness. We become what we eat, but it happens really quickly. It happens really quickly because this is a quick process. You ever been in a situation where you're around somebody like family and they start getting frustrated? What happens to you? You get frustrated. Why are you getting frustrated when they get frustrated? Because you're eating their buffet. And you are what you eat. And so if you eat frustration from them, guess what? You get frustrated yourself. It's, a, it's an example. It's an illustration of actually eating from the other person's buffet. Now, you and I... For most of our lives, we we just haven't been aware of this. 
We haven't been aware necessarily that the love of God and that buffet is available for us to eat all the time. But we've been around other situations and other individuals where the buffet is just not working very well because there's manipulation and there's control and there's all this kind of stuff that's going on. And, and, and we find ourselves fighting back to protect ourselves from these things that are going on. Yet we find ourselves so attracted by the pleasures that, that it offers down here. And so human nature now naturally gravitates towards this. Uh, if you consider this to be a, a, an up and down screen like it is right here, gravity is going to pull you which direction? Down, right? So your natural is going to be down here and consuming off of this buffet, not up there. But when we come to realize that that up there is available, then there is now a choice, right? There is now a choice to choose to eat from God's buffet regardless of what circumstance or situation that you're in. Now, when somebody else presents to you a buffet of selfishness, when they present to you this kind of stuff, and so you're in a situation and there's the rah, 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 whatever going on, do you have to eat from their buffet? No, you don't. The buffet of God's love is still available at that time, and you and I have a choice of which buffet we eat from. And our outcome in the circumstance is not dependent upon what they are providing. Our outcome in the circumstance is based upon which buffet we choose to eat from. Mostly we're over here, eating from their buffet, but we can learn by God's grace and through his power to eat from the buffet up here. Um, which buffet did Jesus eat from? Yeah. He ate from his father's buffet. Because he ate, how often did he eat from his father's buffet? All the time. So it didn't matter what the circumstances or situations were around him. It didn't matter how somebody was reacting and what their, what their attitudes or their behaviors or other things were like. He didn't get caught up in all of that stuff because he didn't eat from their buffet. He ate from his father's buffet, and you are what you eat. And so he was exactly like his father because he only ate from his father's buffet. Hmm. Although there may be a tainted, corrupted atmosphere around us, we need not breathe its miasma, but may live in the pure air of heaven. We may close every door to impure imaginings and unholy thoughts by lifting the soul into the presence of God through sincere prayer. Those whose hearts are open to receive the support and blessing of God will walk in a holier atmosphere than that of earth and will have constant communion with heaven. Mm. Gives you an idea of the buffet and how that works, right? All right, next scenario. Imagine with me the individual in your life that you love the most. And let's say that it's a special occasion that's coming up. Maybe it's an anniversary, birthday, Christmas, something like that. And you want to get them the perfect present. And so you think about them and you consider what they like, what they don't like, and so on. You go online and you go searching and looking for things. You go into the stores and you look around. Eventually you find the item. It's the perfect item for them. But it costs too much for you to buy it right now. You've got to put money aside for a few months. So you do. You put that money aside. And, uh, and the day comes. You buy the, 
you buy the present, you wrap it up nicely, and, and so on and so forth, and, and the day comes, that, that anniversary or whatever, and you come and you knock on the door. And they open the door, and with a smile, you hand them the present, and they take the present, and they throw it on the ground, they stomp on it, and they slam the door. How do you feel? Bad? Yeah, what else? Rejected? Angry? Frustrated? All right. All right. Um, Next scenario. You've been working for UPS for a number of years. You enjoy your job. You like brown things, brown cars, brown packages, brown clothes, brown doors, and all sorts of brown stuff. And, uh, and uh, so you've been working there, has a good career, and so on. And one day you stop at a particular residence. You grab the package. You go up to the door. You knock on the door. The resident in the home comes out. They sign for the package. You hand them the package. They take it. They throw it on the ground. They stomp on it, and they slam the door. How do you feel? All right. So you're thinking they're crazy. Yeah, they signed for it already, you know. Um, are, you, are you feeling rejected? Frustrated? Hurt? Angry? Ah, yeah, surprised. Sure. So why are we feeling all of these bad ways in the first scenario, but we're not feeling all of those bad ways in the second scenario? Oh, it, 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 all right, that word investment, right? Investment. It, there was nothing invested in the second scenario. In the first scenario, it is. It's mine, right? It's my present. Represent, it was bought with my money, represents my love, and that was my loved one. But in the second scenario, what's that? Effort expended. Mm-hmm. Yeah, effort expended. And the second one, it's not mine, right? It's not my present, wasn't bought with my money, doesn't represent my love, and that's not my loved one. So let me make this point. To the degree to which you believe it's yours will be the degree to which you are hurt, frustrated, rejected, upset, and so on when the present is not treated as you thought it should be. But the degree to which you believe it's not yours is the degree to which none of that will be true because it's not yours. It's not about you. So how much do we actually claim in our lives? We claim all. Because every time this happens to us, how do we respond? With the frustration and the hurt and the anger and the rejection and all that kind of stuff. I can tell you because I I run through the same scenario with thousands of people all over the place. And it doesn't matter which continent I'm on and which place that I'm at, I get the same response. Same response, because it's human nature. Now, there's another component to this or another aspect to it, and one of the reasons why I'm hurt and rejected and so on in the first scenario is because I didn't receive what I expected. There was a certain expectation along with a gift. I expected that at least they were going to be thankful or you know, a smile or a hug or something like that. Whatever the expectation was, they did not meet the expectation, and because the expectation was not met, then there was a disappointment associated with the giving of the gift. As you mentioned, an investment. Human love, human love is an investment. 
We put something of value in someone else so that we can get something of greater value back. That's what an investment is, putting value in to get greater value back. Question, does God invest in his children? No, he doesn't. He doesn't. How can he invest in anything and expect greater back than what he put in it? Right? We can never give back more than what he gave us. Nothing in all creation could return to him more than what he put into it. Right? God does not invest in his children. He gives to his children. But human love is an investment. We, we will put time and we will put attention, we will put money, we'll put flowers and teddy bears and other types of things like that in, but we're looking for an investment out. We're looking for acceptance or belonging or to get along with someone or, or, or these types of things, right? And we will barter different things, you know, investments. You've got bonds, stocks and bonds, and you've got real estate and you've got currency and all sorts of things like that. Well, we do the same thing, but on an emotional level, right? We, we'll, we'll, we'll gladly give up money, if that will turn into belonging. We will, we will get, gladly give up time if that will turn into attention, right? We will gladly give up these things if it will turn into the greater thing that we're interested in. You've heard this phrase, no strings attached, of course. Uh, is there any such thing in human love as no strings attached? No, in human love there's always strings attached. For example, you have another neighbor never met them before, just moved into the neighborhood. They come, they knock on the door, and, uh, and you know, they introduce themselves. Hi, I'm so-and-so, moved into the neighborhood, coming to meet my neighbors, and, and, uh, and here, they, they hand you a $100 bill. They say, here, this is yours, use it however you want to, and then they walk away. What are you thinking? Yeah, some people are thinking, I like this neighbor, All right? Uh, most are kind of a little question mark in their minds. Second scenario, this same neighbor comes up. It's the first time that they ever come, and they knock on the door, and they introduce themselves, and they hand you a suitcase, and they say, here, this is yours. Use it however you want to. And then they walk away, and you get the suitcase, you open it up, and $100 bills just come spilling out of the thing. I mean, it's just packed full of $100 bills. Now what are you thinking? Which present are you more comfortable receiving? The $100, right? You're more comfortable with the $100. Because you and I know by experience that the bigger the present, the bigger the string, right? The bigger the present, the bigger the string. And the harder they can pull later. Right. So we, are, we have been trained by experience in human love to be weary of or wary of the greater gifts because the greater gifts have bigger strings attached and we're not sure how hard they're going to pull. Do you think we ever do that with God? Do we refuse the greater gifts because we're afraid of what he's going to ask in return? Hmm. 
It's a question to think about. Well, those strings are there because of our expectations. And how much you need to return on your investment, how much return on your investment uh, it needs to be there just depends on the expectations. And, and so that bar of the expectations is quite important when it comes to the payoff of those investments. Now, <clears throat> let's, uh, let's get a little ugly. It's not been ugly yet. We're just... We're just starting to, to build the, the background for it. We're going to get ugly today, and unfortunately, we're not going to dig very far out of ugliness today. I guarantee we'll dig out of ugliness tomorrow, but today we're not going to dig too far out of ugliness. We've got to see the diagnosis, right? Doctors got to be upright with his patients and tell them what the diagnosis is, and to do that, we need to go to the heart, Right Now, what am I talking about? I am not talking about that blood-pumping muscle. I'm talking about the part of the man, the part of the mind, which uh, is called the citadel of the man. And here in the heart is where we make decisions, but we make decisions here unconsciously. We're not conscious of the decision-making process that goes on here, but it is the decision-making process um, for ourselves. Now, there's another decision-making area uh, in the mind, and it's called the will. But these are, these are separate. Now, the decisions that are made from the heart are made based upon only two criteria. That's it. Almost like a binary system, like computers. On, off, one, zero, and so on. And those decisions are made based upon gain or loss. And you and I function in a, in a predictable manner in that we always go for the gain and we always avoid the loss. Right? We always go for the gain. We always avoid the loss. For example, uh, we have, you can come into the room in the back or you can come into the room in the front. Or I should say go out of the room. So you are now locked in here and uh, there's only two ways out. So if you go out of the back of the room, then I will pay you $1,000. If you go out the front of the room, you pay me $1,000. Where are you going out? All right, you're going out the back. Why? Because if you're confronted between a gain and a loss, you're always going to choose the gain over the loss. Now, next scenario, if you go out the back door, I will pay you $1,000, but if you go out the front door, I'll pay you $10. Which door are you going out? You're still going out the back because if you're confronted between two gains, you're always going to choose the greater gain over the smaller gain. And finally, if you go out the back door, uh, you're going to pay me $1,000. But if you go out the front door, you pay me $10. Which door are you going out? Yeah, no, no, no options for windows. I know. There's all these window people that are trying to crawl out of windows. No option. <clears throat> right? You're going out the front door. Because if you're confronted between two losses, you're always going to choose the smaller loss over the greater loss. We always choose toward the gain. We always choose away from the loss. And we're told that for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus is telling us that the heart is the place where the treasure resides. Right? And the treasure is not just the value, it's the system by which we value different things 
and we determine how valuable it is and whether it's considered a gain or a loss. Right? The heart is where this system happens. And that is, again, a function of the heart. And because the heart is, is functioning in the way that it is, then that means that when it comes to temptation, the enemy cannot tempt us to lose. Right? The enemy cannot tempt us to lose. Well, what do you mean? Hasn't he done that all along? Well, you see, loss is no temptation at all. So if I offer you a poison, a pretty poison, um, but that pretty poison is going to kill you, it'll kill you slowly, it'll be painful in the process, and there's no antidote for it. Want some? No? Well, you're not even slightly tempted? No, because loss is no temptation. Right? Loss is no temptation. So the enemy could not have come to Adam and Eve and said, here, eat this, you'll die, you'll lose out on eternal life, and uh, everything will go wrong for you. Want some? Well, he could have, and, and we'd probably be in a better place right now than what we are, right? Because that would be no temptation at all. So what did he have to do? He has to come and trick us into believing that loss is gain and gain is loss. Right? He has to trick us into believing that loss is gain and gain is loss. And so in the Garden of Eden, God told Adam and Eve, he said, if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. And and the, the alternate to that is if you don't eat it, you will Live, right? So if you eat it, you're going to lose. If you don't eat it, you're going to gain. And what did the enemy do? Well, the enemy came along and he said, Has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Insinuating a little doubt. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you not. Uh, then, the woman, then the serpent said to the woman, Eve, um, I think you're smarter than that. Right? Um, who's speaking to you? I'm a snake. Have you ever heard a snake speaking to you before? No. Do you know how I'm able to speak to you right now? Well, I came to this tree months ago, and I ate its fruit. And immediately when I ate the fruit, I had power that I didn't know was possible. I have thoughts in my head that, that I never knew were even possible thoughts to have. And when eating that fruit, I have gained so much. And God knows that when he created you, you were so much greater than me. That when you eat this fruit, you will be like God. Knowing good and evil, right? You see, it's like, um, for those of you that travel often and you fly various different locations, um, I don't know about you, I've never been in that first section that you walk through the airplane. I've walked through many times, but I've never stopped there. Nobody's ever given me the privilege of stopping in one of the bigger chairs in the, you know, first class, it's always back to the, you know, to the back of the airplane and the small little, you know, and your knees are here and somebody, they put their chair back and you're like, uh, you know, and you don't have much space left. And, and when it's those internet, you know, you're flying to China or other places like that, oh my, it's, those flights are forever. And uh, 
And I, 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 I look up into first class and I see those ones where you can actually lay out flat for the whole trip. And I think, oh, what would it be like to sleep for 14 hours on this leg of the trip all the way over to Japan or wherever? Um, but <clears throat> in here, God created you for first class, right? He created you for first class. And in doing so, he had to withhold something from you, Right? In creating you for first class, he had to withhold from you economy. Right? That makes sense? But the enemy came along and he said, "Uh uh-uh, you're sitting in economy. And God withheld from you first class. Because the heart always goes after the greater gain, right? Right? It always goes after the greater gain. And so Satan had to convince Eve that it was the greater gain to eat the fruit. That's exactly what he had to do. And so God said, if you eat it, you lose. If you don't eat it, you die. The enemy came along and said, ah, if you don't eat it, you lose. And if you eat it, you gain, right? Sorry, I said that wrong. If you eat it, you lose. If you don't eat it, you gain, on God's side, right? Um, So he just had to get the whole thing and turn it upside down. Upside down, right? And how did Eve respond to that? Well, we're told in Genesis 3 and verse 6, it says, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. What does it mean that she saw? She saw that the tree was good for food, pleasant to the eyes and desirable to make one wise. It means that she believed. She believed that it was a gain. And Satan knew that he didn't have to get her actions. He had to get her beliefs. For once he had her beliefs, he knew he would have her actions. Because you do what you do because you believe what you believe. And what you believe will always be manifested in what you do. We're told that every man will live out every measure of faith that he has. So, our world turned upside down. Upside down at that point. When When Adam and Eve believed the serpent and his version of reality, which was upside down and backwards from God, then our whole world and our whole understanding turned upside down as well. And you and I live in a situation where we believe the opposite. But we don't realize it. We think it's all normal. Have you ever met somebody that was crazy? Sometimes all you have to do is look in the mirror, right? <laughs> well, in my, in my practice, um, both in medical school training, I had psychiatric uh, rotations and uh, had some interesting experiences in the psych hospital with some individuals. And then also as an emergency physician, um, if you have individuals that are very um, flavorfully psychotic... Um, they end up coming through the emergency department because you've got to check them out and make sure that certain things are okay before they go on to the, to the psych hospital. 
And, and so I've had quite very interesting discussions with individuals about what their reality is like. You know, Some of them, they have microchips that are implanted in their brain, and the military is sending them signals and making them do things. And other ones, the news anchor is giving them directions, instructions directly through the TV. It's not for anybody else. It's just them and the news anchor. Others, they have superpowers, and they can do this or that or whatever. And I have never been able to talk somebody out of their craziness. I haven't. In, in, in talking with an individual, I have never been able to convince them that what they believed was real was not real, and what I believed was real was real. Never. Usually you have to give them some powerful medication or something in order to then help them to have insight in the fact that there's a different reality than what they think is reality right now. Now, I will say this, we are all crazy. But we're all crazy with the same delusion. And, and it's really hard to tell if you're crazy if everybody has the same delusion and if you've been living in it your whole life. It's like culture. Culture, you don't know what the different aspects of your culture until you get out of it and then you can look back on it later. For example, I had no clue that there's such thing as personal space, right? Um, and that there's a certain distance that you stand away from somebody when you have conversations with them. And if they get inside of that personal space, then they better be really close to you, you know, um, or it's going to be really awkward um, having them in that space. Well, I didn't recognize that that was an issue until I went as a student missionary to Belize. And in Belize, their personal space is about half of what it is here in the U.S. And so I'd be in a conversation with somebody and they would move in here and I would step back here and, and they would move in here and I would step back here and they would move in here and I'd step back here and it, oh, it was so... Yeah, you know, because they're, they're like in my space. And, but I got used to it after a while because I lived there for 10 months. And, and uh, you know, but I had no clue that there was even this issue of personal space. Why? Because I grew up with it. It was always a part of my life. I just couldn't see it. But the same thing is true with this delusion, this upside down backwards thinking. It's everybody. Everybody believes the same way because everybody came from Adam and Eve. It's the delusion of sin. And we're all in this delusion of sin. And if we go and check with somebody else, we find that they have the same story that we do. And we check with somebody else, and they have the same story that that one did. And when we check everywhere, everybody has the same story that everybody else has. And so how are you ever going to know that you're messed up and it's not really reality? You know, it's actually a problem for God. To convince us that we're crazy? It's, it's a difficult thing for him. He tried for three and a half years with his disciples. What, what did he tell them all the time? He said, oh, you have little faith. 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 Did they get it? No. He came to the end and, you know, he said, all of you are going to desert me. And they're like, oh, not me. Not me. Not me. Not me. Not me. Peter's like, oh, even if all they do. Not me. And Jesus had to get specific. No, you, Peter. Tonight, before the cock crows twice, you're going to deny me three times. Peter, did he believe him? No, he didn't believe him. Did the other disciples believe him? No. Jesus even invoked scripture. He said, the scriptures say, strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. All of you will desert me this night. Did any of them believe him? No. You see, the deception is so great that God could look us in the eye and tell us what's wrong and we wouldn't believe him. Oh. 
Oh. So how is he going to reveal to us what the reality is? We're going to get into that. <clears throat> the, the enemy told Eve that uh, she would be like God. Is it, is it possible that you and I believe that today? Ah, you're crazy. All right, so let's look at this heart within the context of human love. Let's look at it within the context of human love. Again, human love is giving in order to receive, right? It's giving in order to receive. It's that investment, putting something of value in to get something of greater value back. And so it is an investment. If my love is giving in order to receive, then what is my gain? My gain is to receive. And the more I receive, the more gain that I have. Aunt Matilda dies, you get put in the will, and you get her favorite pen. Or Aunt Matilda dies, you get put in the will, and you get $3 million. Um, which one's a greater gain? The, the $3 million, of course, right? Receiving more is a greater gain. But as long as I receive enough, I'm still in gain, right? You get a present, you know, you give a present for Christmas or whatever, and you, you give it to the grandchildren, and, you know, maybe it's socks and underwear. Ooh. Uh, and, and they open up the present, and, and mom and dad give them that quick, sharp look, right? And they turn, they say, thank you, Grandpa, thank you, Grandma. And, and then they go on and they, you know, they go through the rest of their presents. Well, you have what you expected. You, just, you, you don't expect a whole lot out of socks and underwear, right? But the expectation is at least they will be grateful, you know, say thank you, and then, you know, go on with the other presents and so on. And so as long as you receive, you receive enough, you're still here in the land of okay, the land of gain. But once you go below those levels of ex expectations, that's where we start running into loss. You can still be receiving, but you're receiving less than what you expected. Now you're in the land of loss. What is worse than receiving something? It's receiving nothing, right? So it's also a loss to not receive anything. And what's worse than not receiving anything? It's losing your treasure, right? It's losing your treasure. It's hard for us to lose our treasure. So we can see that the more we receive, the more gains we have, and eventually, once we get to this line of our expectations, once we get below that line, now we're in the land of loss. And so if you're going to mitigate your losses, basically, the only way you can do it is to lower your expectations. Let's throw this within the context of a relationship. Let's say that you have a young man and a young woman, and uh, they've met, them, met, met each other on a college campus somewhere in uh, Tennessee. And uh, in that college campus in Tennessee, they, uh, they uh, you know, there's, there's this, I, I don't know how to describe it other than z z right? And when I say z everybody knows what I'm talking about. So there's this kind of z z attraction thing that happens and you know and he goes well you know I like that and and he likes that so he wants some more that's right he wants some more and so if you're going to get more then you have to invest more so you got to figure out who her friends are so that you can hang out with the common friends so that you can 
you know, especially if you're chicken little and you're afraid of rejection and, you know, that kind of stuff, you have to be a little bit cautious about how you, you know, uh, you don't want to let them know that you're really interested in them too early in case they're not really interested and you haven't gone fishing long enough to get the hook set, right? Um, but anyway, so you go about this and you, you, you know, eventually you start investing in a flower. Oh, well, they received and they like the receiving and so they, they take it and, and they live by the same love of, of giving to receive and so they give something back in return and you get attention and so, you know, life is good, but you always want less or more. More, you want more, so so you invest a little more so that you can give a little, you get a little bit more back, and so you know the flowers, it goes from one flower to two flowers to five to six to twelve, you know, and and the teddy bears started small, but the teddy bears got bigger, and you know there's there's poems and there's there's walks and there's talks and other types of things like that, and life is just beautiful. Right? It's just wonderful. You have, you're giving and you're receiving and you're so happy and they're receiving and they're, they're giving and they're so happy and so on. And life is just great. And you finally get the idea that I, I think they're a permanent gain. Well, when you think they're a permanent gain, what do you have to do? You have to, you gotta, you gotta set the hook. <laughs> right? Um, and, and, and so you, 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 you propose. Of course, you've got to get past Papa Bear first. But, you know, you, you, you propose. And, and, uh, and you hope that they think that you're the, the greater gain, too. Because if you're the greater gain, what do they have to say? Yes, right? And, and if there's competition, you hope that you're not anywhere of number two or beyond down the list. Because if you are, what are they going to say? They're going to say, no, holding off for number one. Once they lose the idea that they'll have the opportunity of number one, then they'll start picking with number two and then with number three and so on, right? You always go for the greater gain. Well, so, you know, you propose. She says, yes. Ah, life is great. And so you stay up until two in the morning planning your wedding and colors and who's going to be the bridesmaids and the groomsmen and all that kind of stuff. I'm not telling you my story. And... uh, And my story is only an illustration, not an example of what to do. But anyways, um, so, you know, and then life is just wonderful. And and then eventually what happens? You get married. That's right. Oh, marriage, right? And um, it, it took a lot of investment in order to catch the fish. Sometimes it doesn't seem like it takes as much investment to keep the fish, right? Um, and, uh, and, and, and so, you know, you remember that you had friends before and you had, uh, you had hobbies before and you had other interests and other things like that. And, you know, when you come home from work and you're tired and you just want to relax in front of the TV or the newspaper or other things like that. And, you know, the teddy bears get smaller and the fewer, the flowers get less. And, and eventually there's not, there hasn't been a poem in the last 15 years and, you know, and other things like that. So, through all of this time of the early relationship, you'd been, you'd been giving and raising their expectations and giving and raising their expectations and giving and raising their expectations. And now, the expectations are way up here and then you start giving less. Oh, yeah. Now, what are they going to do to stay out of loss? They have to lower their expectations, right? And lower and lower, less and lower, less and lower, less and lower. And, and in the American population, oh, it's about seven years, that's about the average, where you've gotten to the point where somebody finally says, enough is enough. I'm not lowering my expectations anymore. 
And if the other individual is not performing above the level of your expectations, now you're in loss. And what are you going to do with that loss? Well, you've got a couple of options. You can try to convince them to give better. So you can have those conversations to try to, you know, let them know how you feel loved and, and so on and so forth so that they can do those things. And if your intervention works, well, hey, praise God, woo Now we're above the level of my expectations and I'm back in gain. But if it doesn't work, well, then we pull in the pastor, we pull in the counselor, we pull in somebody else so that they can convince the deadbeat to give more so that they're above the level of my expectations so that we can be okay and we can continue on in this marriage. But if that doesn't work, now you're stuck in loss. Well, there's only one way that you can stay in loss, right? In this heart, there's only one way that you can stay in loss. If by, so, if by choosing this loss, I avoid the greater loss, then I can stay in this loss, right? If by choosing this loss, I avoid the greater loss, then I can stay in this loss. Otherwise, you can't stay in loss. The heart won't do it. So the greater loss might be the loss of God's favor. We might understand that God says, I hate divorce, right? And, and we desire God's favor, and so because we desire God's favor, we'll be willing to stay in the loss of the current marriage so we would avoid the greater loss of God's favor. But somebody comes along, and they tell you that, well, you know what? God never intended for you to be miserable, and it wasn't his desire for you to marry that person anyways. That was your choice, and, and, and so on. And God is a forgiving God, and, you know, he, he'll wink at our sins, and so on. So just go do the nasty deed, and then ask God for forgiveness, and, and you know, wipe your hands, and things will be okay. Well, if you believe them, now it has just removed the greater loss. And what you have becomes the greater loss, and the heart always says what to the greater loss? It always says no. So you either, there's separation, or there's divorce, or you can go looking for another gain. Right? Why do we find the, the relationship chaos that we do and why we interact with each other and, and, and make the decisions that we do? It's because this is the heart that we have. And this is how it functions. And it functions based upon the gain and loss, but it's all upside down because of the lie that Adam and Eve believed back in the Garden of Eden. It's all upside down. Now, also, this heart believes it's mine, right? I have it. It's my possession. I can produce or create it, and I am my own to do whatever I want to with me. It believes that it's mine. And so when the present is given, it was given from me. It was my present. It represents me. And if the present is thrown down and stomped on and the door slammed, I'm hurt. I'm rejected. I'm upset. I'm whatever. It's personal. Mm. Mm -mm -mm. Now let me ask you this. How much of what you have belongs to you? All right. So he said nothing, none. We know that, but do we believe it? The answer is we know it, but for the vast majority of us, we don't believe it. Because we treat it as if it is ours, and you do what you believe. All right? We can think differently 
than what we do, it's because we don't believe what we think. It's an intellectual assent to the truth, but it's not really belief. And, uh, and so here, what, what is the character quality behind thinking that it's mine when it's not mine? You have two children playing in a sandbox. The truck belongs to one child, and the other child comes along, takes that truck away, and plays with it as if it's mine, and tells the other one, no, mine. You would say that that child is? Selfish. That's right. So the character quality behind this thought that it's mine is selfishness, right? That I have it. It's my possession. But what's the character quality behind this idea that I can produce or create anything on my own and that I'm my own to do whatever I want to with me? Pride. That's right. So, all right. So let's dip into ugliness. Let's dive in. The only motivation that this heart can come up with for what it does is selfishness and pride, right? That's the only motivation this heart can come up with for what it does is selfishness and pride. But it thinks that the selfishness and pride is actually love, it thinks that the selfishness and pride is actually love. <clears throat> Why do we do what we do? What, what's the motivation behind the love that we have for our, our parents, for our siblings, for, for others? If our love is giving in order to receive, then the objective is self. The giving is only the means to the end, the receiving. It's selfish. It's about self, right? We are told in Isaiah 64 and verse 6, but we all like an unclean thing, and all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. We, are, we all fade as a leaf. Our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. Why is it that all our, how many of our righteousnesses? All. Oh, hang on. You mean, you mean, you mean even the tithe that I give and you mean even the service that I, you know, and the soup kitchens and the, and the this and the that and the other things and whatever, all of that, all of that good stuff is, is, is filthy rags? Yeah, absolutely. Why? Because it's not so much the thing that one does, but the reason why one does the thing that would make it righteous or not. Now, the thing itself that one does is important too, right? Righteousness will manifest itself a certain way, but the, but the purpose or the reason behind it is vitally important. And for us, our righteousnesses are for our sake. Brownie points with God, mansion in heaven, golden streets, fruit of the tree of life, um, that we might have more peace, Right, so that there might not be as much of that anxiety and so on going in us, and, and by doing these things, it relieves some of that anxiety so that we feel better. Hmm. Mm, mm, mm. What can selfishness do? This heart of selfishness can speak with the tongues of men and of angels. 
This heart of selfishness can have the gift of prophecy, understand all mysteries and all knowledge, can have faith so that we could remove mountains, it can bestow all your goods upon to feed the poor, and it can even give your body to be burned. It can do all of that for a selfish reason. Right? Even the sacrifice of your own life, you can do it for your own reputation's sake. Right? All of our righteousnesses are but filthy rags. And Jesus tells us in Matthew 7, 22 and 23, says, Many say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? Then I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. How can he say that to those who are doing these things? It's because the motivation is absolutely foreign to the motivation of God. Absolutely backwards. And so we seek to do the good, but we do so with the bad motivation. But we think it's good because the thing we're doing is good. And so we trust in the goodness of our doings, not realizing that the motives are rotten. Paul tells us in Romans 8, verse 7, says the carnal mind is enmity, hatred against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. This heart cannot, let me repeat, this heart cannot obey the law of God. It cannot. It cannot subject itself to God's law. It cannot. It's impossible for this heart to submit and surrender and subject itself to God's law. It can't. Impossible. Because it has desires that are completely opposite to God's desires. And we're told, of course, in Revelation 3.17, you say, I'm rich and have become wealthy and need of nothing, and you do not know that you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked? You know, our, our hearts, oh, they're just, they're deceitful. Absolutely deceitful. It gets worse than this. You want to get worse? All right, well, we're going to get worse anyways because we've we got to see the diagnosis, right? We've got to see the diagnosis. Um, to give first in order to receive. Let's just look at that, that human love, giving in order to receive. Who alone in all the universe can give first? God. God's the only one that can give first because he can create in the giving. Everyone else must first take in order to have something to give. And so if I have a love that gives first in order to receive, then who am I? I am God. I am God. And so in the very best that I think I have and the very best that I think I am, the love that I have for others and for God and so on and so forth, I find myself in the place of God. In fact, this is the fundamental identity crisis of humanity. That is, we believe that we are God. We believe that we are God. Do you want another proof that you're God? Anybody in here sin? No? All right. So how could you sin and choose other than what God has chosen for you 
If you too are not a God who can choose other than God chooses. And of course, we're told in Exodus 20, verse 3, you shall have how many? No other gods before me. And yet we find that the biggest God that we have is the other trinity. Me, myself, and I. Right? Me, myself, and I. Uh, my wants, my needs, my time, my whatever comes first, God comes somewhere down the line. Right? This heart is also a slave to others. It's a slave to others. Why? Because it depends upon their giving as to whether I receive or not. Right? If they don't give, I can't receive. If they give a little, but it's less than what I expect, I'm receiving, but I'm receiving in loss because it's less than what I'm expecting. Only when they give enough, according to my expectations, can I receive enough. And so they are my source. They are the one that determines whether I gain or lose other than my ability to raise or lower my expectations. And so I'm dependent upon them. I'm a slave to them. I must do things to them so that I can get that which I need. So I can be in game. Now, I might do good things. There's the good manipulators. Those are the ones that we love. They're, they're the happy, smiley-go-lucky, put their arm around you, encourage you, and, and, and tell you nice things, and so on and so forth, so that they can get the same thing back in return. They're giving, but they're giving in order to receive, right? But then there's the ones that manipulate on the bad side. They're the ones that give you the guilt trips. Those are the ones that will threaten. Those are the ones that will abuse. They will use fear, and force, and so on. Why? Because they see you as their source, and they don't want to lose their source, and so they will use every manipulation possible in order to keep you as their source. All motivated by the same heart, and at one side, this heart can look beautiful. You know that early relationship and the, you know, floating on cloud nine and everything looking beautiful? That's all the same heart as the one where you have torture and abuse and, and all sorts of hell that goes on in relationships, all in the same heart. And we look at it and we think, oh, well, if I could only be like the better part of the heart. <laughs> but God's not interested in improving us in the heart. He's interested in a, a new heart. How am I to know that Christ is in my heart? If when you are criticized or corrected in your way and things do not go just as you think they ought to go, if then you let your passion arise instead of bearing the correction and being patient and kind, Christ is not abiding in the heart. Ooh. We're told that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can not? This, this craziness that you and I have been born into that, that Eve and Adam walked into and every one of their children have been a part of ever since that time. This craziness is so profound that we will always be desperate for wickedness in this heart. Right? What does it mean to be desperate? Right? Like being in the desert and, and it's absolutely dry out there. Thank you, Ashton, for this 
illustration. And you're just parched and your tongue's dry and you can't even speak and, you know, everything's blurry and your headache is just horrible and you know that you're going to die and just off in the distance you see a, 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 a water source. Oh, and you, but between, between you and it is a cactus patch. Are you going to brave the cactus patch to get to the water? Yeah, because you are desperate for the water. That is how the human heart is for wickedness. It is desperate for wickedness. But it thinks that the wickedness it's desperate for is good. Because its whole vision has been turned upside down, backwards. God created us to gain. He created us to, to gain knowledge and to grow and to so on through, through all of our lives. And with that desire, why do people go for climbing the tops of mountains? Right? It's because of that inborn desire that God has given to us to explore, to understand, to know more, and so on and so forth. And so we will always go searching for the top of the mountain. But if your whole world is upside down and you go to the top of the mountain, where do you end up? You end up at the very bottom. Desperate for wickedness. Thinking that you're going for greatness. Deceived. We're told, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. And we're also told in Psalm 139, 23, and 24, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me, and know my anxieties, and see if there is any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. We're so crazy, God can't just tell us that we're crazy and we'll believe him. But God has another tool to wake us up. It's called Demonstration. Demonstration. David prayed this prayer, of course, in Psalm 139, and God could have run, come right back to David and said, well, you know what, David, you're a murderer, you're an adulterer, you're a slanderer of my name, you're this, that, and that other thing. All of that resides in your heart. And David likely would have come back to God at that time and said, no, God, am I not a man after your own heart? Do I not delight in your law? Is it not my meditation day and night? And so on. He would have had an argument with God about that because he wouldn't believe that it was there. But God allowed the demonstration to come. And David slept with Bathsheba. He murdered Uriah. He slandered God's name across Israel and then the surrounding nations and so on and so forth. And people through thousands of years from the time of David has used his sin as an excuse for them to sin. And it was when Nathan the prophet came and Gave David a story, you know, about a rich man with a bunch of sheep and a poor man with one sheep. And, you know, the rich man took the poor man's sheep when a stranger came and, and, uh, and sacrificed it and fed it to the man. And, oh, David was angry. How dare there be somebody so selfish in my kingdom? That man must die and pay back four times what he took. Mm. It's easy to see the speck in your brother's eye and not see the plank in your own. That's how crazy we are. And Nathan pointed his finger and he said, I assume, I don't know if they pointed back in those days, but I just used the American context. He pointed at him and he said, you are the man. You are the man. And it was then that the floodlights of heaven's love <laughs> shined into the hell of David's heart. And he could see what he really was. 
because it had been demonstrated. He would not have believed it had it not been demonstrated. But now that it had been demonstrated, he could see who he truly was. And only then, in seeing who he truly was, could he pray the prayer of Psalm 51, where he says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me by your generous spirit. And when we, in like revelation, and in like demonstration, we see the hell that resides in our hearts. And we see that we have absolutely no righteousness of our own. It's all filthy rags. And we have nothing to come and offer to God of any goodness whatsoever. When the hell inside reveals itself by hurting others and by the words that we speak and the actions that we do and so on, and we realize that it came out of us because it was in us, then we too can pray with the same earnestness as David did for a new heart. And God answers us in Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27 when he says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. That's his promise of a new heart. Now, I don't want you to get the idea that everybody you run into is only living in the old heart that we've just been describing. Because the grace of God is interjecting a new heart. And we see that revealing itself in individuals' lives. And we're going to look at that new heart tomorrow and see what it's like. Right now, we have to see the diagnosis. It's bad. It really is bad. We have no righteousness of, uh, at all to bring before God. Our sin is full. That's all we can come up with. But tomorrow we're going to see the beauty of a new heart and how that heart functions and what it looks like. And we're going to look at it in the context of the life of Jesus as well because he's the only pattern we can look at on this earth that shows us really what that heart looks like. And I'll tell you, tomorrow will be beautiful. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I, I thank you for your abundant blessings. Thank you for your great love to us. Such an awesome God. We thank you. Lord, we recognize that we have nothing good. Our hearts are deceitful. We're crazy. And Lord, we need a divine intervention to open our eyes that we may see the situation that we are in, really. And Lord, we need a power above and beyond ourselves for something we do not have, a new heart, a heart that beats in harmony with our Savior, a heart that's motives are pure, a heart that is just like the heart of Jesus. And Lord, we pray for this. 
Perhaps we'll spend some time in personal prayer and, and contemplation of our situation. Perhaps we realize that there are things that we need to let go of or things we need to take up, like we talked about on Sunday. Whatever it may be, Lord, we want that new heart. And so if you need to demonstrate in our lives more of the hell that resides in our hearts so that we'll believe it, well, Lord, let it come out. Not for destruction, but for salvation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.